Good morning, good evening, and good day. You're listening to Drama Buds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds. Finally, after two years, I really am venturing outside of K-dramas and the Korean, I don't know, entertainment industry. And I want to talk about the Japanese dramas that are available on Netflix. Because I know that subbed J-dramas are very hard to find from what I've heard. So I'm really happy that more J-dramas are now available on Netflix and not just Netflix original J-dramas since I think being Netflix produced has a, a global or an international influence on it. Yeah, the audience is more than just the people in Japan. So I think it's nice that they have both Netflix original Japanese shows and J-dramas that were you know made by Japanese production companies aired in their broadcasting stations and were made with the Japanese audience in mind. That's, that's an interesting thing to, to study, right? Anyway, so yeah, today I'm just gonna talk about some of the J-dramas that I've watched on Netflix recently. And since this is not my world, this is not my area of expertise, (laughs) I won't have as many insights, I guess, on the writers and the directors. And yeah, in this TV station, they tend to feature these kinds of stories, blah, blah, blah. I do not have the insider knowledge for that. But I am surprised that with the few I've watched, I can already recognize some actors and writers. So yeah, just quick-ish reviews on on First Love Hatsukoi, The Makanai Cooking for the Maiko House, and Quartet. The premise of it, what I liked, how I think it compares to some K-dramas I've watched, the things about the execution I really liked. You know, in general, this is a very positive uh, episode because, yes, I am trying to entice people to watch J-dramas so that I, you know, if ever I end up watching more and kind of fall off of K-dramas a little bit, at the very least, I know some people will enjoy that content. So yeah, let's start the quick-ish reviews. Now, could I, could I make an episode about J-dramas without talking about First Love Hatsukoi? Which wasn't my first, you know, J-drama in this whole Asian dramas phase of my life, but it's my number one Asian drama of 2022. I've talked about this in my Q4 recap and my year-end awards, which you should listen to because I did, you know, rave a little bit. Just pure feelings on, on how much I love the show. But now that I'm re-watching it, I'm, I'm trying to notice more details and trying to put into words, aside from just, it's utterly gorgeous. Aside from that, why is this so gripping? Knowing that I'm such a cynical person, I don't like cliches or whatever. It's like recently, I've been revisiting that stance. And I think sometimes we can like cliches. Sometimes they're done well. So before that, First Love Hatsukoi is about the story of two people, Harumichi and Yae, who were each other's first loves when they were teenagers. And how, despite the changes in their lives, they held on to the pure and innocent love that they had for each other. But life was relentless. Like, really, they've been through so much. And it really did 
keep them apart. They lost. They lost to just the relentless nature of life. And then we saw how adulthood and the paths in life that they ended up in dulled the memory of their youth and innocence. If you know, you know. And then we meet them again as adults and we see the aftermath of those events on them. And yet, there are like remnants of youth. There are remnants of passion and dreams and their love that endured in them despite everything. And the show plays a lot with fate and how everything that happens in your life, every person that you meet has a crucial role in making the person who you are today. Now, this may seem like such a basic story. Because it is. But I think it was crucial that this was portrayed in a non-linear narrative. We don't meet them again as adults. We meet them as adults and as teenagers and see those stories kind of weave in and out, back and forth in the past and present timelines. Now, what is most striking to me about this, because it's a risky choice to do something so non-linear, it's striking to me how much I love both the past and the present timelines. Because usually with parallel storylines like this, I like one timeline but not the other. Either the plot in the present timeline is so much more interesting, so much more gripping, and the flashbacks feel like they're just dragging out the plot to keep you from the big reveals. And it feels inconsequential because you know what's going to happen. So why are the events from the past timeline so far from where they are in the present? And like, why does it feel like we are, we are meandering, we are dawdling just to keep the, the intrigue? Also known as Jirisan. This was definitely Jirisan. Or, or, on the other side of that coin, the flashbacks have so much more meat and heart in it. Like, the past is the story. And the present timeline, for some reason they're showing the present timeline here, it adds nothing to it. And that is 2521. I mean, you could say that, no, it serves the theme of like, you know, sometimes the youth is just your youth. It is a glowing time in your life, but you move past that. But plot-wise, or actually even serving that same theme, honestly, the future timeline did nothing because there was no story in the future timeline. It was just a, a framing device, right? It was just a device to frame the idea that, oh, Nahido's child is reading her past diaries. But anyway, back to First Love Hatsukoi. Thank God, both timelines feel meaty. They feel interesting. It's because it's not necessarily two parallel timelines that progress in a linear fashion. The present timeline is, yeah, mostly linear and it's told in a shorter span of time. But the past timeline jumps around a lot more. Like it jumps, you know, big uh, periods of time where it even goes back and forth into moments of their relationship when they were young. This story is obsessed with making parallels to itself, and I love it. When we watch the past and present timelines, the present timeline makes us ask, how did they end up like this? One second ago, they were happy. And then the next scene, when they're adults, they seem so miserable. They seem so devoid of everything. What happened? How did we end up here? And then we go back to the past and, oh, that's why. And now, as I'm rewatching, I keep thinking, it's amazing that they've even held on to a sliver of the energy, of the passion, of the, I don't know, romanticism of life after everything they've been through. Especially Yai. I, I can't even get into it here because I really don't want to spoil anything. But I love adult Yai so, so, so much. And now that I've mentioned, yeah, the younger and the adult versions, the uh, disparity between past and present timelines is usually made worse when they have two sets of actors 
and one timeline has better actors than the other. And thank God, both pairs here are phenomenal. For the younger versions, Harumichi is definitely a stronger character and has a stronger actor than Yae. That's fine. When we first meet him, you think like, oh, typical Sundare bad boy type. But no, my God, he is just such a dork. He is a boy, you know? He's so straightforward. He wears his heart on his sleeve. And he's willing to give that full heart to Yae and to his family and to everyone that he loves. Like, he is a man who just loves wholeheartedly and is willing to use his boundless energy to show that to them. But Yae really shined when she became an adult after everything that she's been through. Because in the past timeline, we saw what she lost and how much she suffered. And in the present timeline, we see who she's become and wonder how she's even managed to hold on to any bit of light in her life. Like, how do you manage to smile and laugh and treat people with warmth after everything? And oh my gosh, I have to really give a shout out to Hikaru Mitsushima, her actress, who I will talk a little bit about later in Quartet. I'm amazed that I have seen her in two projects already. But yeah, she is just, oh, she's a, a bundle of joy. And so delicate, she's so precious, and the way she acts is so natural and so heartbreaking. Like, seeing her deal with all of this is actually heartbreaking to me. I love her, I love her. And then for adult Namiki, played by Takeru Sato, I love seeing the glimpses of this reckless, straightforward boy in his adult self. It's like you think, okay, I mean, he's, he's grown out of it. He's a, he's a grown man now. He's not a boy anymore. But no, there are really these moments when he's just exploding with energy, and I love seeing that. But everyone's performance in general, though, is really, really great. I really do love everyone in this cast. First off, Hatsukoi is the most gorgeous thing I've watched in all of 2022, visually and musically. I think when you have a story that's this simple, this cliche, like the tropes used here are really tropes. Like, wow, in the year of our Lord 2022, we're still seeing this trope. And yet, and yet, when you're telling a story that simple and that cliched, you have to do your absolute best in the music and the cinematography and the acting and in weaving things together to make an experience that is still worth watching. Even if you know you're not going to get anything new. They're not going to reinvent the wheel or create a new you know, frontier for romance and for things about first love. But they will make it an experience that's worth watching and worth paying attention to because this is definitely one of those shows where you should watch every scene of this because you never know when some you know little thing when the use of color in a certain shot or with a certain character will actually mean something and you know how much i love those kinds of shows Next up, we have the Makanai cooking for the Maiko house. So I had this on my radar because the showrunner of this is Hirokazu Koreeda. He was the writer of the entire thing and the director for the first two episodes. And if you don't know this guy, he directed Shoplifters. And that was emotionally devastating for me. Definitely deserved all the praise it got. And I haven't watched Broker. I know I need to watch Broker. 
I will get to it eventually. But yes, when the time is right, yeah, we'll finally watch Broker. Excited for that to shatter me as well. I hope so. Anyway, the Makanai is about two teenagers who want to be Maiko. They're the apprentice geisha or geiko in, in Kyoto. They're, you know, traditional entertainers. And they leave their homes and go to a Maiko house to live with them and to train with them. But Kiyo soon realizes that she has no talent for it and discovers that she's better suited to be the makanai of the house or their live-in cook. So this is Slice of Life at its truest. Truly, no plot, no attempt at injecting drama. At most, we have little character arcs, we have some romances that do or don't work out, but nothing is the entire focus of the show or even the episode. Like, barely, barely focus on anything. You know, sometimes they do talk about passion and their dreams and giving up on them. We love stories about giving up on their dreams. Sometimes we get stories, yeah, about their families. Like, how do their families take, you know, this this whole moving away from them as a teenager and living with strangers to become entertainers? And they are, in a way, kind of, subverting the uh, the stereotypes on geishas and this whole entertainment industry. Like, yeah, in reality, there is an exploitative aspect of it. But I think they really tried to portray this in a more positive light. Anyway, the Makanai is really just about the found family of these strangers from all over Japan, living together in the same house, eating the same food, pursuing the same dream together. It's kind of a story about nothing. And I love that. We love stories about nothing. I love that this show doesn't try to add any heaviness to it because it knows that its audience is here for the peace. We're here for the vibes. We're here for the food. We're here for the view into Japanese culture, especially in this case. Like This is a very traditional aspect of their culture that's still alive in modern times. Anyway, I want to talk about K-dramas a little bit because... I think we don't get a lot of true slice-of-life dramas like this because there is a fear that the audience will get bored or that they don't want stories about nothing. I know there are movies like this. Like, I heard uh, Little Forest starring Kim tae is here, which ironically is based on a Japanese manga. So, you know, yeah. Uh, but for K-dramas, I can't think of any that really, really stuck to the no conflict, no drama vibe of this show. For example, recently, I think Summer Strike was the drama that tried to evoke something similar to this, you know, the peaceful countryside vibes, you know how it is. But even that show had to add a murder plot line towards the very end. And the villagers, I heard, were, you know, very annoying and unwelcoming to Yorum. So none of the wholesome vibes of the, the other Maiko in this house. Summer Strike, unfortunately, did not commit to being, you know, the peaceful and quiet show about doing nothing. And instead, it tried to be peaceful and also profound and also emotional and also thrilling. And yeah, I, I know it still had a lot of those moments of peace and there were people satisfied with it. Like it is, I'm sure, a comfort watch for many. But it is yet another example of how Slice of Life and K-dramas are still afraid of being boring. 
Another show that I think tried recently is Once Upon a Small Town. Yet another countryside drama. I think romance is heavily featured in it. So I consider that to be a plot. I'm sorry, I think Slice of Life should be truly about nothing. Not even romance. Just family, found family, friendship maybe. And also, I don't want to try it. <laughs> I don't want to try either of these. So, back to the Makanai. In here, there's, once again, no hint of heaviness, no cattiness or competition among the ladies who technically should be competitors. Kyo, our kind of main protagonist who, you know, became the Makanai instead, she doesn't aim to be the greatest chef or the greatest Makanai ever. And Sumire, the friend that she came here with, says that, yeah, she's gonna be the greatest geko in the country and her senpai Momoko calls her a rival, sure. But there's no heat behind it. There's so much support. They keep lifting each other up, helping each other out. It's so wholesome, so healing, and it commits to that because it knows we're here for that very reason. We're not here to see, you know, geishas or gekos or maikos like, tearing each other down. And so even if it could be boring to some people, it's not afraid of that. And in terms of like themes or messages, I don't even think it was trying to be overly profound with its messages and with the little stories that comprised each episode, which I liked. I don't mind that there was no like grand theme to it all. I'd say episode four was my favorite episode in terms of story, in terms of like getting me to feel emotions because it did almost get me to cry. It almost got me. Uh, episode eight was a quote-unquote filler episode. If you could call any episode filler here, what's it trying to fill? Nothing. Um, but it is weird and absurd and funny. And I love it. I love the show. Because sometimes I don't really want to feel the full spectrum of emotion anymore. And if there is nothing in the story, right? If it's a story about nothing, which is fine, I want it to look and sound so gorgeous that I won't even notice. Like, I'm just here purely for the vibes. And this show is so pretty, so peaceful. They let the camera linger forever if they want. Every time you think, yeah, we've stayed a second or two long enough on this pot of boiling sugar. No, we're gonna stay here for three more seconds. And you're gonna love it anyway. And the music, oh, I listen to it constantly. It's gorgeous. It's so playful. It further emphasizes the peaceful Studio uh, Ghibli vibes of it all. This is a great watch if you just want to breathe for approximately seven hours. Like, just to breathe, just to relax. But I warn you, don't watch this when you're hungry. It is genuinely painful to watch the Makanai when you're hungry. And the last J-drama that I discovered is Quartet. So fun fact, this has the same writer as the original Japanese versions of the K-dramas Mother and Matrimonial Chaos. Which, I mean, those are two very different shows, right? And yet, same writer. Amazing. Uh, unlike the others that I've talked about earlier, this was aired on TBS, so an actual broadcasting station in Japan. Quartet is about four musicians who meet coincidentally and decide to form a string quartet. 
But they have lots of secrets. And the first one we meet, Suzume, played by Hikaru Mitsushima, beloved, um, she was paid by someone to spy on Maki, so another one in the quartet. So the quirky start of them all meeting at the karaoke place, coincidentally carrying their instruments, it would be a great start to a sitcom, right? But now... That whole setup is tinged with suspicion. Because is it just Suzume who was hired to spy on Maki? Or were all of them here to spy on her? Because the way it's directed makes you really doubt everything and everyone. There is a constant feeling that you don't know if you can trust anyone in this show. And yet, there is so much humor and heart and camaraderie among these four. So it's funny that Quartet is under the thriller category on Netflix. Like At least when it was uh, on my homepage, they put it under thriller. And then in the description, it says it is a mystery romance. But when I watched it, it felt more like a sitcom. It felt more like slice of life comedy. There's this constant return to status quo at the end of every episode. Because the first five episodes, I'd say, were about discovering the secrets behind the main four and how they all ended up here. Like, what is this weird, suspicious vibe that each character is giving off? And we peel each of those back. And then we move into the main plot of discovering if Maki actually killed her husband, which is why her husband's mother hired Suzume to spy on her. And then even after resolving that, it returns to a new but kind of similar status quo and holds on to the heartwarming sitcom-y aspect of the show. Like, I wish, honestly, this was like two, three, six more episodes. You know, I could live with six more episodes of this. I really don't mind. Although it is marketed as a mystery romance for some reason, the romance is focused on uh, very sparingly. And there are really episodes that are yeah dedicated to exploring the romance, but barely anything if not for those episodes. Spoiler alert, there's no resolution to the love lines that they're kind of pushing here. Uh, there's no end game to root for, really. Don't worry about it. Because the most important relationship here is the friendship among the four and their relationship with music. Now, you know I love stories about people who love music and want to pursue it, but also acknowledge that you know real-world concerns and you know, maybe a lack of prodigious talent like we're not prodigies here okay we weren't born knowing how to play the cello (laughs) um but yeah that can hinder that dream but the love for music remains constant and so can the friendships that you form through that shared bond they will not become the best and most successful quartet ever but that's not really the goal and you know what this reminds me of it reminds me of hospital playlist aww even the living room where they practice kind of looks like the basement in Sokyong's home. I would not be surprised if the designers of Hosplay saw that and thought, we can build a set similar to that. This show is so funny and so witty, and it's made even better by this cast. Once again, Hikari Mitsushima, I've seen her in First Love. She's even more bubbly and bright here. Oh, so natural with how she reacts to people. She really just bounces off 
the people she acts with. Uh, I've also seen uh, Ryuhe Matsuda in Weakest Beast. It's also on Netflix. I wouldn't really recommend it because I think the pacing is weird. Uh, and now, I guess I have to watch him with Takakumatsu, the actors of Maki here. They were also in My Dear Exes, also on Netflix, also written by the same writer. So, I mean, I guess I have to watch now, you know? Although, I think I need to watch a different J-drama before I watch another one of this writer's works because I don't want my expectations on J-dramas to be set by one person. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want this to be my standard if this is, like, really good because I found it really good. Anyway, I cannot go into the characters as much as I want to because that would involve spoiling the mystery behind them. But I will just warn you, be prepared for a decent amount of quirkiness and silliness, you know? There are stretches of conversations where it feels like, you know, they're being unnaturally witty here. You're a little uh, too on the nose with what you're saying. And even though the humor is hit or miss, depending on how much you like the character or how much you enjoy their topic, it is what it is. I have to say, the actual writing, when it gets down to it, is so good and so detailed. Uh, I love it when you have these visual details that are prominent when they're first featured. Like, the camera does focus on this one item that you don't know if it's gonna mean something later on, but, I mean, they did have a dedicated shot to it. And it's not obvious what it's supposed to mean or symbolize until the story decides that this is the time to bring that shot back. For example, this show very simply showed the difference between people who are able to use thumbtacks on their walls versus those who have to use tape. Think about it, right? This showed the difference between the quartet who were living a relatively comfortable, cushy life compared to this old pianist they met who was struggling to make a living through music and couldn't even put a poster of himself or a picture of his family on the wall using thumbtacks because he was a renter because he didn't own where he was living. Like, such a subtle detail, and yet they were able to point that out. Or another example, there are these uh, succeeding shots of socks carelessly being taken off and thrown to the side when they get home. At first, it's something that Maki prominently associates with her missing husband. And then in the next shot, we see Suzume taking off her socks before playing the cello in the exact same way. Like, that is Suzume's like, habit before she plays. It's kind of a parallel to how, you know, Maki saw her husband as her only family until he went missing. And now she has the quartet. And Suzume is actually the person who is closest to her. Kind of her new found family. Now, I should not be surprised that the original writer of Mother is able to seamlessly weave these details into the narrative. Like, I'm sure when I watch Mother the Original, which I do plan on watching if I can find a copy of it. Ah, oh, gosh, so many things I need to watch now. Oh no. <laughs> but yeah, I'm unsurprised that he was able to do that. Like, yep, that makes sense. And I'm glad that this director that he worked with was able to retain that level of detail and emphasize it appropriately without being, uh, without telegraphing it too much, you know, when it's a little too on the nose. I felt like there was an appropriate amount of subtlety, but, you know, they also led us to it enough that it feels like a genuine discovery when you realize that, oh, that's what that was meant to symbolize, or, oh, that's what that was paralleling. You know, I like it when I'm able to dig for it a little bit by myself, when it's not 
too telegraphed or too on the nose. You know what I mean. Anyway, there are also moments when the cinematography is genuinely just pretty. It's just a pretty shot, which I realize now isn't a huge concern for J-dramas, or at least the J-dramas I watch that aired on their broadcasting channels, not the Netflix ones. Because, I mean, First Love is gorgeous, gorgeous. The Machanai was gorgeous, gorgeous. But this and Weakest Beast, I felt, were less concerned about cinematography the way I think 80% of modern K-dramas are nowadays. But okay, back to Quartet, there were also moments when the framing of the shot or the way the they pull the focus back and forth between characters, it's just so visually interesting. This is actually a visually interesting show. I feel like I've talked about every aspect of this show and had something good to say about them. Huh. Okay, back to K-dramas. More K-drama reflections. I know recently I've been complaining about how K-dramas mix genres too much. There's always rom-com thriller, slice-of-life mystery. It's like we can't just have something that's purely its genre. And yet here in Quartet, I am praising the hell out of the show for, you know, disrupting genuinely funny moments and light and heartwarming scenes with this distrust and unease due to this mystery that's like constantly in the background. But I think the key differences are, one, Quartet, or at least Netflix, marketed this as a mystery. And the very first scenes already introduced that plotline, so it didn't take me by surprise. Like It didn't market itself as a rom-com, and then suddenly, people are dying. <laughs> you know, okay, fine. I, mentally, I knew what was coming. And two... They did every aspect well, every genre that they tried to add in here. They did it well. So it's not like it's a half-baked attempt at inserting drama or excitement to something that was originally boring and flat and unfunny. It was genuinely heartwarming, genuinely funny, and genuinely intriguing when it had to be at every moment that it wanted to switch genres. The problem with these mixed genre shows is that everything is half-baked because they think that just having the element of friendship and humor and romance and mystery, that's enough. Just the mere presence of it. That's what people want, right? They want everything. No, we don't want everything. You have to do each of those aspects well. And I'd rather you do one aspect well or two aspects well, rather than having five of them and doing none of them well. This is one of the few shows that has managed to excel in every genre that it has tried to mix. With only 10 episodes that are 45 minutes each, which another strength of J-dramas is the very precise and controlled length, which makes the editing a lot tighter and just, in general, a lot more enjoyable to watch. That's it for me today. Guys, I'm worried. I'm genuinely worried right now for K-dramas because my Netflix algorithm is going hard on, on recommending J-dramas to me. And I'm very tempted to just, you know, abandon my currently watching list and jump straight into this the way I did with K-dramas. And they're so short. Most of them are 10 episodes and the first episode maybe is like an hour long. And then the succeeding ones are 45 minutes long. It's crazy. 
crazy. That's insane. And I know I just got lucky with the ones I started out with, but I'm, I'm kind of ready to jump into this. Like, oh no. Oh no, guys. This is very dangerous. But I mean, hopefully, K-Drama Land will figure out how to drag me back into its clutches. Until then... We'll see. No promises on whether or not I'll ever make another J-drama episode. I think K-dramas have a good hold on me for a few more months. I do have a few shows I'm looking forward to. But we'll see because it is a lot easier to get through a J-drama than it is to get through a 16-episode or even 12-episode K-drama nowadays. But yeah, that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you soon. for tuning in. Feel free to leave a comment, like, subscribe, follow, and tell me what you thought about today's episode. See you soon!